Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. Jesus, man, messenger, messiah. Chapter 5, part 1. The crucifixion, indisputable fact, or the most misunderstood event in history. After the deity of Jesus, the crucifixion is perhaps the most contested issue about his life between Christians and Muslims. The crucifixion sees a real the crucifixion sees a rare conversion or convergence of opinion between Christians and secular historians. The crucifixion sees a rare convergence of opinion between Christians and secular historians. His death on the cross is taken as an almost indisputable fact of history to the point where it is not even questioned. Yet the Qur'an makes the bold claim that he was not crucified. Is it possible that the Qur'an written some 600 years after Jesus could be right? In this chapter, we are going to see that contrary to what many tend to think, far from going against the tides of history, the Qur'an is in fact in perfect harmony with the historical account. The key to understanding this lies in appreciating the nature of the New Testament and the Qur'an. Where the New Testament authors writing under division inspiration. Where the New Testament authors writing under divine inspiration. The earliest accounts we have for the crucifixion are the books of the New Testament. Within the New Testament, it is the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that provide the details of the crucifixion. Other books may allude to the crucifixion, but it's the Gospels that contain the details of the events that led up to the crucifixion, the crucifixion itself, and the events after the crucifixion. Are the Gospel accounts divinely inspired? This question is critical in determining the reliability of their claims about the death of Jesus because only divine inspiration provides certainty. <coughs> Human endeavors are limited in what can be discovered about the past because human beings can only deal with what is apparent. A good example to illustrate this concept is the late Mother Teresa. She was a Roman Catholic nun who dedicated her life to the poor, sick, and dying in India. Such was her dedication to charitable work that she has been dubbed the saint of the poor. She was the recipient of numerous honors, including the 1979 Nobel Peace Prize. In 2003, she was beautified 
she was beatified, sorry, in 2003, she was beatified by the Catholic Church uh, as Blessed Teresa of Kolkata. Blessed Teresa of Kolkata. She was beatified by the Catholic Church as Blessed Teresa of Kolkata. <coughs> At the time of writing, the Catholic Church has announced that she will soon be officially recognized as a saint. For a long time, historians held her as an example of piety. No credible historian questioned her faith because of what was apparent. Everyone judged her by her public persona. All of this changed 10 years after her death with the release of some of her private letters. They revealed for the first time that throughout her life she was deeply tormented about her faith and suffered periods of doubt about God. This stands in marked contrast to her public image as a selfless and tireless minister for the poor who was driven by faith. <coughs> Literally, overnight, she went from being the saint of the poor to a doubting uh, Thomas. Because these letters were kept secret by her colleagues and seniors, historians held to a distorted picture of her, of her even long after her death. What this example serves to demonstrate is that the reality of a situation can and often is at odds with what we as human beings are able to perceive using our limited senses. Coming back to the Gospels, is it the case that they are divinely inspired and therefore their accounts of the death of Jesus represent certain knowledge? Let's look at some reasons why they were not divinely inspired. First, from what is apparent, the authors were merely writing accounts about the life of Jesus, albeit ones that were theologically based. None of the authors of these books claim to be writing under divine inspiration. The divine inspiration uh, of the Gospels is a conclusion that Christians arrived upon later. Without any explicit statements by the Gospel authors, it is impossible to say with certainty what each author thought of their own writings. There is a verse... Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which is frequently cited as evidence that the Gospels were inspired or are inspired by God. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The reasoning is that since this verse mentions all scripture as being God-breathed, then that would include the four Gospels. Now, this understanding of the verse assumes that these writers viewed the term God-breathed uh, 
the same way as it is viewed by Christians today. What is meant by God breathed from the Greek uh, theo, uh, uh, theopinstos, theopinstos, uh, theopnistos, or neustos, we can't say for certain as this word, we can't say for certain as this word was not used by other biblical authors and appears only once in the entire New Testament, so we cannot assume it was a common term early Christians ascribed to the scriptures. Putting this to one side, did the writer of Second Timothy have the Gospels in mind when they wrote this statement? We can look to the history of the compilation of the New Testament for an answer to this question. The New Testament canon, that is, the compilation of books that make up the New Testament today, was not determined until after the first century. So, the author of the Second Timothy could not have been referring to the New Testament when they mentioned all scripture because the New Testament had not yet existed. Rather, they must have been referring to the Old Testament scriptures which did exist at the time the author penned Second Timothy. We can look to how the authors of the New Testament viewed each other's writings for a conclusive answer as to whether they personally believed the gospel accounts are divinely inspired. When we analyze the Gospels, we will find that there is a lot of overlap in the content of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them narrate the same events, often with, with identical wording and in the same chronological sequence. Hence, scholars classify these Gospels as uh, synoptic, meaning giving an account of the events from the same point of view or under the same general aspect. Hence, scholars classify these Gospels as synoptic, meaning giving an account of the events from the same point of view or under the same general aspect. This strong parallelism among the synoptic Gospels has been widely attributed by scholars to literary uh, interdependence. Let's look at some compelling evidence of copying between the Gospels of Matthew and Mark Compare the speech of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16, and Mark chapter 3, verse 14. And notice the identical editorial comments by both authors. Let's read it. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. But in the other, uh, Mark 13, 13, chapter 13, verse 14, Uh, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, that let those 
who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Mark 13, verse 14. <coughs> These comments in parentheses, let the reader understand, are almost certainly the author's editorial comments directed to the readers rather than a quote of the words of Jesus. Yet both authors, Matthew and Mark, add the exact same comment in the exact same location in the discourse. It is highly unlikely that two writers would, by coincidence, insert into their accounts exactly the same editorial comment at exactly the same place. The most likely explanation is that one of the writers was using the other as a source and copied not only the bulk of the discourse, but also the same editorial comment. By, uh, by, comparing the details, by comparing the details found within the stories of the Synoptic Gospels, we can see that not only were the authors copying from one another, but they were also making significant changes to each other's accounts. <clears throat> the incident of the woman in the crowd. Let's read Mark and let's read Matthew. Mark chapter 5 verses 25 to 34. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you. You see the people crowding against you? His disciples answered, And yet you can ask, Who touched me? And yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 to 22, we read, Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. <coughs> the 
The Gospels of Mark and Matthew narrate a story about a woman who seeks to be cured by touching Jesus' cloak. In Mark, Jesus does not seem to know who touched him. He even asks the crowd. Only after the woman comes forward and confesses, does Jesus know who touched him. Contrast this with Matthew's account, which omits a large portion of the story and instead has Jesus immediately spotting who touched him. Matthew seems to want to portray Jesus in a more powerful light. This incident of Jesus and the question of eternal life, this is another incident now. The Gospels of Mark and Matthew mention an incident about a man who approaches Jesus and questions him. In Mark, Jesus rejects the questioner's praise of him being good. Contrast this with Matthew's account, which subtly rephrases Jesus' response. Let's read them now. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. As Jesus started on his way, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 and 17, we read, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Matthew seems to have been troubled by the implication of the statement, why do you call me good? And therefore rephrased it very slightly to, why do you ask me about what is good? So as to avoid the difficult implication that Jesus might be admitting to not being wholly good. In three or section three, the disciples and Jesus sailing on a boat. That's another example. The disciples and Jesus sailing on a boat. The Gospels of Mark and Luke provide an account of the disciples on a boat with Jesus during a storm. The attitudes of Jesus and the disciples are portrayed very differently. Let's read them. In Mark 4, chapter 4, verses 38 to 40, we read, Jesus was in this turn sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? In Luke chapter 8, verses 
23 to 25 we read, As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in a great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. Mark portrays the disciples as rather disrespectful towards Jesus as they accuse him of being uncaring. Even the response of Jesus is harsh. Do you still have no faith? Luke neutralizes these negative portrayals by having the disciples address Jesus more respectfully and softens Jesus' response to, Where is your faith? In section 4, the last words of Jesus on the cross. Let's listen to this. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, we read at 3, and at 3, and at 3, in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, we read, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Gospels of Mark and Luke record the last words of Jesus. In Mark, Jesus utters the blasphemous words of despair, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke's account deletes these troubling words and replaces them with the far more submissive statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In my experiences of engaging with the Christians over the years, The vast majority of people that I've spoken to are unaware of such changes. This is not uh, surprising because the Gospels are typically read in a vertical fashion. It's only when you read them horizontally, comparing the accounts with each other side by side, that the changes become apparent. Evidently, the authors of the Gospels were sometimes troubled by one another's Uh, depictions of Jesus and his disciples and made changes accordingly. These examples are important because they have serious implications for the doctrine of divine inspiration. The copying and modification between the gospel authors implies they didn't consider one another's writings to be inspired. Otherwise, they would not have omitted material, added their own and revised the wording. Even if one rejects the evidence for literary interdependence, we still have the problem of the significant differences between the gospel accounts. If the authors were writing under divine 
if the authors were writing under the divine inspiration, then wouldn't God have inspired them to record the same details? We must conclude that the gospel accounts themselves were not divinely inspired, but rather very human endeavors. The claim that the crucifixion is foretold in the Old Testament. The claim that the crucifixion is foretold in the Old Testament. An argument commonly put forward to provide divine backing for the crucifixion is that it is foretold in the Old Testament. The reasoning is that even if the gospel authors themselves are not writing under divine inspiration, they are in fact recording the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that Jesus was to suffer and die on the cross of our sins, for our sins. They are in fact recording the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that Jesus was to suffer and die on the cross for our sins. The 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah is the most popular proof text put forward. Here is the chapter in full. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, 
he will see the light of life and be satisfied and uh, and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities therefore i will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors Isaiah chapter 58 verses 1 to 12 <clears throat> In Isaiah's statements such as for the transgression of my people he was punished and he bore the sin of many do at face value in Isaiah's statements such as for the transgression of my people he was punished and he bore the sin of many do at face value seem to bear a striking resemblance to the theology of crucifixion however when we analyze this chapter in its entirety we will see that it cannot be a prophecy about jesus but it comes to prophecies in the scriptures but when it comes sorry when it comes when it comes to prophecies in scripture you can think of each a uh, detail that the prophecy provides as a criterion that must be satisfied so if we consider isaiah 53 to be a prophecy about the future then in order for it to be fulfilled by jesus every detail provided in the prophecy has to be satisfied by the life of jesus as he is portrayed in the new testament if not then jesus fails as a candidate and the prophecy remains unfulfilled we also find mention of the following in verse 10 he will see his offspring and prolong his days he will see his offspring and prolong his days the hebrew word used for offspring zira carries the meaning of progeny and semen So in the context of this verse it means he will see his children this cannot be a reference to Jesus as nowhere does the new testament state that Jesus had children trinitarians might want to think twice before trying to argue that silence on this matter leaves the possibility that it could be true as from their perspective uh, any children of Jesus would, would also be any children of Jesus would also be god men and would have the troubling prospect of grandchildren of the father uh, the verse above also mentions that his days will be prolonged this statement makes no sense in the light of the trinitarian belief that Jesus is god a mortal man's days can be prolonged but god is eternal a being that is eternal cannot have their lives prolonged now those who consider isaiah 53 to be a prophecy about jesus tend to interpret these verses metaphorically as a literal interpretation is problematic 
The issue with this approach is one of inconsistency. Why interpret the mention of those things that support the crucifixion, such as suffering literally, whereas those things that go against Jesus, such as having children and a prolonged life, are interpreted metaphorically. The suffering of spring and prolonged days are all mentioned together within verse 10. And yet, there is nothing within the context of the verse which indicates a mixture of literal and metaphorical interpretation. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So, to be consistent, we should interpret all the statements literally or metaphorically rather than picking and choosing according to our desires. So, if Isaiah 53 is not talking about Jesus, then whom or what is it referring to? The Jewish people have historically associated the chapter with the suffering of the Israelites. There are even prominent Christian sources which agree with the common Jewish perspective. For example, the Harbor Collins, the Harbor Collins Study Bible says, the early church identified the servant in this passage, Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 53 and 12, with Jesus. The early, uh, the early church identified the servant in this passage with Jesus, and Jesus' own sense of identity and mission may have been shaped by this figure. In the original historical context, however, the servant appears to have been exiled Israel. This, this verse is 54. The commentary found in the Oxford Study edition of the New English Bible associates Isaiah's mention of death with the destruction and exile of Israel. The crowds, pagan nations among whom the servant Israel lived, speak here th through uh, nine, verse 9, saying that the significance of Israel's humiliation and Exaltation is hard to believe. The death probably refers to the destruction and exile of Israel. 55. In fact, Isaiah 53 can be applied to any people of God that suffer. We find support for this interpretation in the Old Testament book uh, of Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah faithfully communicated God's words to the people of Israel, warning them about the impending uh, Babylonian captivity that was sure to come unless they repented. But no one listened to him. He was rejected even by his own family. Your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 6. <coughs> Jeremiah suffered greatly as he was beaten and imprisoned they were angry with Jeremiah and had him beaten and imprisoned in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, which they had made into a prison. 
Jeremiah chapter 37 verse 15. Here Jeremiah seems to quote Isaiah 53 and applies it to himself. Let's read that. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, we read, <coughs> Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it, for at that time he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree. And its, free, and, its, and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8, we read, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. We can, in fact, look elsewhere in the Old Testament to settle the question of whether Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. There are prophecies in the Old Testament which specifically relate to the Messiah, and these explicitly rule out any possibility of the Messiah being crucified. In the New Testament, Jesus affirms an Old Testament prophecy about himself. Let's read it. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is Matthew chapter 4 verses 5 to 7. We can see that Satan challenged Jesus by applying an Old Testament prophecy to him. Jesus responds by affirming the prophecy. It is also written. The prophecy being quoted can be found in Psalm uh, chapter 91. We read in Psalm 91 verses 10 to 15, No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent because he loves me says the Lord, I will rescue him, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with you, sorry, I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. 
In Matthew chapter 4 verses 5 to 7 we read, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels <coughs> concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. <coughs> we can see that the verses of Psalm 91 mention that no harm will come to Jesus, no harm will overtake you, that the angels will guard him, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against stone, that God will rescue and protect him. I will rescue him, I will protect him, and that God will deliver him from all trouble, will be with him in trouble, I will deliver him. Clearly this prophecy eliminates any possibility of a crucified Messiah. If we are going to be objective in our interpretation of Scripture, then surely the explicit words of Jesus that confirm Psalm 91 as a prophecy about himself override the uh, comparatively speculative interpretation of Isaiah 53. In summary, far from there being Old Testament prophecies about the crucifixion of Jesus, there are in fact prophecies which explicitly state that the Messiah would not be harmed in any way. The only way you can arrive at a crucified Messiah in the Old Testament is to ignore explicit verses like those found in Psalm 91, and instead interpret comparatively ambiguous verses like Isaiah 53 through the gospel claims about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Alhamdulillah, praise be to Allah. That's the end of uh, chapter 5, part 1, uh, page 105. This is Dr. Khad Dusil from Dhamam, Saudi Arabia, recording this book to you or for you. Alhamdulillah, praise be to Allah.